Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 17. This is the last message in uh, a series we began, I think January 8th, if I'm not mistaken, on Jesus' church, looking at John 10, John 15, and John 17, and it feels like I haven't preached a, a sermon sermon in a month. Well, I haven't. Uh, uh, you know, Easter, and we've had guest preachers and that, who are no longer guests, um, but staff members, so it, it's been a while. We've uh, Hopefully you haven't forgotten what we were talking about. Jesus was in John 17, really in John 15 through 17, he's, he's giving his final message to the disciples, and then in John 17, it's his last prayer uh, recorded at, at, of any length for his disciples. So we're looking at the last part of that prayer, verses 20 through 26 this morning. Uh, yeah, that's right. The last words of, uh, of anybody carry incredible weight with them. Um, for example, some, well, some carry a little less weight than others, okay? Uh, when Groucho Marx reportedly was dying, he let out one last quip, now this is no way to live, um, and died. He was, he was right. Uh, all, for all you young people, Groucho Marx, watch Turner Classic movies. Um, Richard B. Mellon was a multimillionaire. He was the president of Alcoa. His brother uh, was Andrew Mellon, uh, uh, Carnegie Mellon University is named after him among any number of other things, he and, him and his brother anyway. He and his brother had a little game of tag going. And this game of tag had lasted for 70 years or more. Um, that apparently whenever they were around each other, it was tag, you're it, until the next time. Well, uh, when Richard Mellon was on his deathbed, he called his brother over and whispered, last tag. He touched him. Poor Andrew remained it for four years until he died. Uh, he never got to uh, untag. Sir Arthur Conan, Doyle, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle, a guy who wrote Sherlock Holmes stories, died at 71 in his garden. He turned to his wife and said, you are wonderful, then clutched his chest and died. Isaac Newton died, or when Isaac Newton died, he was quite humble. One of the greatest scientists we've ever had, and, and he said, I don't know what I may seem to the world, but as to myself, I seem to have been only like a boy playing on the seashore and diverting myself now and then in finding a smoother pebble or a prettier shell than the ordinary, whilst the great ocean of truth lay all undiscovered before me. Uh, Harriet Tubman, when she was dying in 1913, gathered her family around and they sang, and her last words before she died were, Swing low, sweet chariot. Those, those are... Those are dying last words, but we have uh, at least one incredible example of last words spoken before, uh, when they knew they were going to die, but sometime beforehand. You might remember Dr. Randy Pausch. He was a professor at Carnegie Mellon University, and this school often had their professors give what they called last lectures. What would you lecture if you knew you were going to die? If this was your, the last lecture you could give, what would you do? Dr. Pausch agreed to do it. 
But after he accepted that offer in 2007, he found out that he actually had only a few months to live. He had pancreatic cancer. So he, he thought about backing out of the, the lecture and, and, and just, you know, not being able to take the emotional toll, but, uh, toll, but he decided not to. Uh, he decided not to back out. He went ahead and did it. He had a bet going with his other professors that there wouldn't be more than 50 people at the lecture. Well, over 400 attended. It was standing room only. His, his lecture has gotten millions of views on YouTube. Uh, before he died, he co-authored a book based on the lecture. Oprah had him on and said, you can have 10 minutes, say whatever you want to. I'm not going to interrupt you. I, we just want to hear you. Um, all of that followed uh, him, his, his last lecture. And then just a few months later in 2008, he died. And, and you might remember that from the news. It was a pretty big news story at the time in 2008, uh, what, how inspirational his, his lecture was. Uh, there, were, there were people that would write him letters and say, I was, I was not going to pursue this dream, but now I'm going to because I heard your, your lecture. I, I was going to commit suicide, but I, I changed my mind after hearing your lecture, and on and on and on the accolades uh, came, the, 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 the messages of changed lives because of his words. Last words carry weight. And as inspirational, as, as uh, moving as Dr. Pausch's words were, as you know, humorous as Groucho Marx's uh, words were, they do not carry the weight that the last words of our Savior should carry with it. And we look at those this morning. They weren't, they weren't his actual uh, last words, but they were his last, they would be considered his last lecture to the disciples. Uh, they, they were the last time he would get to sit down and spend any great length of time with them, and they are incredibly important. There's a, an extreme burden and a passion, especially in these last six, uh, seven verses that cannot be lost on us. Read with me, John 17, verses 20 through 26. It says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them and will continue to make it known so that the love you have loved me with may be in them and I may be in them. At this point, when he finishes the prayer, they're going to get up, they're going to walk out, they're going to cross the valley, they're going to go to uh, the, the uh, Garden of Gethsemane. He'll take three disciples with him as he goes to pray. And then he'll be crucified the next day. It, don't miss the emphasis of these last words to his disciples. 
he, he could have prayed for a lot of things, but he prayed specifically for the unity of his church. He begins the passage, not, I, I don't just pray for these, my disciples. I'm praying for everybody that will come to the faith because of them. This, this final portion of his prayer has three parts. He ha, it has his earthly prayer for his church. And we're going to spend most of our time on that this morning. Uh, the second part is his heavenly desire for his church. And then his eternal vow to his church. So his earthly prayer, his heavenly desire, and his eternal vow are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. First, we look at his earthly prayer, and that's found in verses 20 through 23. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one. Look for the... Anytime you read scripture, anytime you're doing your own devotional reading, you're doing your own studying, the repetition though it gets mocked in Monty Python movies, the, the, the repetition is there for a reason. It's repeated because there is a point that they are trying to get to us. You remember, I've, I've told you before that good public speakers are good preachers, and Jesus embodies this, as does uh, many of the authors of, of uh, the Bible. Tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, then tell them what you told them. That repetition is what helps us learn. Jesus repeats these phrases over and over and over. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe you sent me. There, that phrase is going to come up a bunch. I have given them the glory you have given me, so that they may be one, as we are one. I am in them. Wait a minute, he's already said that once, though if he's saying it again, he, it must be important. I am in them, and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me. Twice now he's talked about the world knowing. Know you have sent me and love them as you loved me. Do you think he's trying to get something across to his hard-headed sheep? I think he might be. He's telling us first that the unity is molded and enabled by the Trinity. If we are going to have unity in the church, it's first going to be molded or modeled after the Trinity. We see that in uh, the first part of verse 21. May they all be in one as you, Father, in me, and I am in you. Uh, second part of verse 22, so that they may be one as we are one. The first part of 23, I am in them and you are in me, so that they may be made completely one. Our, our example, our, uh, uh, our lesson in unity comes from the unity between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, our unity is only possible. Our unity as brothers and sisters is only possible because of our unity in Christ as believers. That's why we can sit here and be unified in purpose, unified in vision, unified in mission, because we have the same Savior, we have the same Father. Without that, we will not have unity. As we grow, as we become more Christ-like, we then will become unified because we are not basing, as I said a number of weeks ago, we're not basing our unity on each other, but we're basing our unity on the Father. The example I used a, a few weeks ago was that of a, a tuning fork for a piano. Uh, you, you, you hit that tuning fork and you turn this, tune this piano. 
But what you don't do is take that piano and then go try to tune another piano from it. And then a third piano from that piano, or, or a fourth from that one. You use the tuning fork at every piano so that every piano is tuned to the one fork. Or I also use the example of an orchestra, that they don't all pass the tuning down, they listen to the first chair violin. That's the note that they get, uh, that they tune from, and all the instruments tune from that one note. See, there's one standard that everyone tunes to, and then they are unified. Our one standard is God. We might visualize it like this, if this helps you. Uh, go ahead with that next graphic, please, ma'am. As we get closer to God, look what happens. You and I draw closer together. We, we have to. There's, there's no way around it. If I pick anybody on the back row, Miss Carla, for example, back row way back there in the corner, and if I say, hey, we're going to meet in that chair in the corner, you start walking that way, I'll start walking that way, we have no option but to get closer together as we make progress. Now, if I decide, well, you walk that way, but I'm going to go over here for a little while, well, then we drift. Then we pull further apart. But as long as we have the same goal, we have the same standard, we will not have an option but to draw together. And that's what this graphic shows us. As we draw closer to God, we must, by necessity, draw closer to each other. The inverse of that would also be true, though. If we are not being drawn closer together in unity, somebody's off. Somebody's not pointing the right direction. Somebody is not being drawn closer to God if we, as a church, as a body of believers, as brothers and sisters, are not being drawn together. So unity is, is molded, is, it is modeled by the Trinity. It is enabled by the Trinity. We get our strength. We get our wisdom, we get our guidance to truth from the Holy Spirit. We get our, our marching orders from Jesus in his word. We get our, our uh, sonship, our daughtership from God. All of that comes together to draw us closer to him and therefore draw us closer to each other in unity. The, the, the second thing this earthly prayer does is shows us that there is unity in diversity. Verse 21, especially, may they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. Universe, uh, unity and diversity. The, the, the three in the Trinity are diverse. There's a reason that there's not a father, a father, and a father. There's a father, a son, and a Holy Spirit. They are diverse. They have different uh, jobs so to speak they have different to give them some some human qualities that may not be exactly correct they have different personalities they have different responsibilities they are the same they are equal but they are different there is diversity in the unity of the trinity just like a few weeks ago though i'm not preaching on the trinity this morning but just trust me that that is the case we, as a body of believers, are the same way. We are to be unified in our diversification. We have different parts. We have different gifts. Paul talked about it extensively in his letter to the Corinthians. Talked about it some in Ephesians as well and in a number of other places. Anytime he talks about 
gifts of the Spirit, any, any responsibilities we have, any offices we have in the church, there is diversity among them. None of y'all are like me. Well, Jamie, sorry, bud. He's more like me than the rest of you, uh, and I feel sorry for him. But the rest of you aren't like me, and that's good. That's okay. And the rest of you are saying, yeah, we're real glad we're not like you. Um, that's fine, because there is diversity that must be. I cannot reach people that you can reach. I will, there are circles that I will never travel in that y'all will. There are relationships that I will never have that y'all will. And that's okay. And, and there will be people that I will try to reach that they'll look at me and go, mm-mm, not this boy. I don't know. I don't know who y'all, what. But you, on the other hand, they like you. They're friends with you. They mesh with you. So you are to use those gifts, those diverse, that diversity of gifts, those personality traits that you have that I don't, in order to bring about unity in the body. Different parts, different gifts, but just like the human body, as Paul says, with fingers and toes and hairs and eyeballs and noses and all that, we are one body as a church. We are one nonetheless, despite the differences. And some of those differences run pretty deep. I mean, some of you think, I wish he'd just be more serious in his sermons. Quit trying to be funny. He's not succeeding, so he needs to just stop. And some of you think, wow, he needs to tell a few more jokes. He's just not really entertaining enough. He needs some more illustrations. Or some of you think, well, I won't get into what all of you think. Um, but some of you are just wondering, he, he, he's not, that's great, that's fine, that's okay. I think that about y'all too. I think, Lord, get a sense of humor. Or something, you know, maybe not all of you, some of you. So it's, it, it, is, it is okay that some of you are fingernails. And, and some of us are toenails. And some of us are ears. And some of us are eyes. If we were just all eyeballs, where would the sense of smell be? Yeah, that's, a, that's a great phrase. I think I'll, I think I'll use that some other t time. Maybe, is that original to me? No, Paul said it. Come on, folks. If we were all the same, we would not meet the needs that we need met. We would not accomplish the goals. I talked about this a few weeks ago in, in, one of our, uh, in our last town hall meeting. One of the, the reasons I feel so strongly that Tom was right for this position is because he has gifts that I do not have. And I need somebody like that on staff that, that picks up my slack. I want all of the other staff members to have, it's okay if we overlap some, but I want all of us to have different gifts as we lead the church. That's a good thing. It's a necessary thing. But we still must be unified. There's no option for disunity because of our diversity. Instead, we are to be unified in spite of, and not even in spite of, we are unified because of our diversity. Our bodies would not work if we were unified, if our parts were unified, but not diversified. They must be diversified in their responsibilities, but they also must be unified in their purpose. 
If they're not, we call that a disease. Autoimmune diseases, those kinds of things where your immune system fights against your own body, that's unhealthy. That's not good. So if we have parts of our body, individual parts, fighting against each other, then that is unhealthy. That is not where we are supposed to be. We are sick if that's the case. Our body is sick. Jesus prays that we will not be sick. And the third form of unity we see God pray, uh, Jesus pray for in his earthly prayer was unity with the apostolic purpose. We have one goal. We have one mind. We have one purpose. It is an evangelistic necessity that we are unified. If we are not unified, if we are not behind the one mission of the church to seek and save that which is lost, to make disciples of all nations, if we are not unified in that purpose, we will not succeed in that purpose. And that is our only purpose. So therefore, if church, we are not unified, we are failures, pure and simple. If we do not unify behind the mission of reaching the lost, if we have any other concern, if we have any other purpose as a church, we are failures. And that failure can often be tracked and traced back to our disunity. See, the world is looking for hope. And they're looking for all kinds of hope in all kinds of ways. They're actually even looking for unity. Why do you think that we, we, we have come to a place in our culture where you are no longer allowed, especially as Christians, to have a divergent view of particular issues? We, we are not allowed as a church to believe abortion is wrong. We are not allowed as a church to believe that marriage is a, is a sacred institution between one man and one woman and in no other situation. We're not allowed to, the, to believe those things. We're told that if we do, we are, being, uh, 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 we are stirring up disunity. We are going against the trend. We'll be told we're on the wrong side of history. We're being ostracized. We're being put out of the, uh, the group because of our beliefs. There are a number of reasons why that's the case, but one of the big ones is the world wants unity. Sadly, though, they just want unity in the wrong things. But that is what they're looking for. They want hope. They want to go to someone that has things together. And our unity, even if it is against what they think we should be unified for, our unity is an example of hope for them. It's not always going to be that, case, that way. I'm not saying that, oh, if the church would just be unified, everybody in sulfur would come to Christ. Narrow is the gate, and few are they who find it. The world is not going to come to Jesus. I hate to be a party pooper, but not everybody on earth is going to follow Christ. There will be millions upon millions who will reject the message, reject the offer of grace. That does not change our responsibility to take it to all of them, though. That does not change our responsibility to share the message with anyone, begging anyone to repent and be saved. But if we are doing that, 
from a, a, a place of disunity, if we are making goodwill, good faith efforts to take the gospel to people, and those are people who are open to the idea, and they see disunity, they see the same thing here that they can get at their job or their family, fighting and backbiting and undermining, then they will not heed the message of the gospel. It, it, I don't know if it is apocryphal or not. Gandhi is credited with saying, I would believe in your Christ if it wasn't for you Christians. Now, in the days of the internet, who knows if he really said that or if it was somebody else and it's been attributed to him. But I guarantee you someone throughout the history of time has said that very thing. I would believe in your Christ were it not for you Christians. That is a horrible epitaph for our tombstone. I, I shared a, a, a little status yesterday. The evangelism director, or the, uh, uh, what is Shane? Church planning director for the Southern Baptist of Texas Convention, where we came from, said the church that waits on the community to come to them will die waiting. We must go to them. That is absolutely true. But we also must present a picture, present an example of the church of unity and love, the very thing that if, if you, I don't know what our lessons come from, JR, which, which one they are, but if you did your Sunday school lesson this morning on 1 Peter 4, it's the very thing it talked about, love within the church. You're getting it twice today if you came to Bible study and that's your curriculum. I didn't plan that, God did. Because we are to love each other, we are to unify around the mission, unify around the vision, have one purpose, have one goal, and exemplify that love and that hope to the world. It's hard to do that, though, when we're fighting among ourselves. This was Jesus' prayer. Look how many times he said, May they all be one, verse 21. The end of that, So that the world may believe you sent me. Verse 23, that the world may know you have sent me. If we move on down, he says it again. Uh, but I lost it. The emphasis is clear in this first section. His purpose in our unity is so we're happy, so we get along and can do things, so we have nice, calm business meetings? No. His purpose in our unity is to reach the lost. That was his earthly prayer for his church. His heavenly desire for his church in verse 24, Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, so that they will see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the world's foundation. Jesus wants to be with us. And that should come as a remarkable wow moment because some of us don't want to be with us. Jesus knows you better than we know each other. There are people in here you don't want to be with because you know them, so you say. 
Jesus knows you, and he wants to be with you anyway. Do you see where I'm going with this? You don't know anybody as well as you think you know them. Jesus knows you better than you know yourself. He wants to be with you, but you say you can't be around that other person. You've got problems then. Jesus' desire is to be with us. Why did he come in the first place? To be with us. Why did he go to prepare a place for us? So that where he is, we may also be. Right here in verse 24, he says the same thing. And one of the implications of this verse is that the unity that we experience here will be a foretaste of the unity we experience there. It's a very, oftentimes, slight glimmer of foretaste. Sometimes we have to look for it really hard. But if we experience unity here in Him, in the Father, in that triangle that I showed you earlier, because each and every one of us is drawing closer to Him, therefore we are drawing closer to each other, we will experience something like what we'll experience one day in heaven. And it'll be phenomenal. There are churches that are doing this. Don't think this is some pie-in-the-sky dream. Oh, that can never happen. Yeah, it can. If you're thinking it can never happen, you're part of the problem. It can happen, but it depends on each and every one of us deciding that it will happen, that we will be a unified church, that we will bring some flavor, some foretaste of heaven to right here, right now, where we are. And, and the only, the, the, Jesus prays a number of prayers. But I, I, I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about this, but just immediately to mind, nothing, immediately nothing comes to mind of a place where Jesus made anything close to a demand of God. We go to the garden here in, a, in just a little bit, and he prays, if it's your will, let this cup pass from me, not my will, but yours. Even, even the beginning of this prayer, he, he's saying, you know, Father, uh, verse 17, or rather, the beginning of chapter 17, glorify your son. I mean, it, it, they're, they're very strong requests. But in verse 24, we have Jesus saying, God, Father, Dad, this is what I want. There's almost an if to the other parts. Verse 20, I pray not only for these, but also may they all be one. There's an understanding here that there will be difficulties in our unity. Our sinfulness will get in the way of our unity. But in verse 24, it's I want this. This is what I want, to be with these people, to have them here. This portion is guaranteed to be answered. I, I don't know about the other parts, but I know that this one request of Jesus will definitely be answered someday. We as believers will be with him in heaven. We will experience unity with him, with the Father, and with each other. That is guaranteed to happen. That is his heavenly desire. That is the result of our belief in him and our salvation. And then lastly, we see his eternal vow. Verses 25 to 26. Righteous Father, the world has not known you. 
However, I have known you, and they have known that you sent me. I made your name known to them, and will continue to make it known. There's the vow. Will continue to make it known, so that the love you have loved me with may be in them, and I may be in them. What is this eternal vow? This is Jesus saying to us today that he will continue to teach us, number one. He will be there to guide us. He sends his Holy Spirit to do so, but it is the words of Jesus that will guide us and will tell us, lead us into all truth, guide us into what we're supposed to, to, to do, give us his will for the next step, provide the vision for the mission. The mission's been set up, but everything else he will teach us. He will spend time with us. And in doing so, he will continue to grow love in us. Right? Because if we are on that track, each of us getting closer to God, then we will grow in love to, with uh, each other. It is both a natural byproduct of being closer to God and a direct result of his action in our life. Both and. It will just happen to some extent, but Jesus will work in our lives to bring us unity, or bring us to unity. He wants us to be unified. He's not going to leave it to happenstance and say, well, you know, I'm going to throw out some stuff there, and if they take it, fine, and if they don't, well, I guess we're just not going to be unified. No, it is a purpose of his continued teaching in our lives, his continued action in our lives, to continue to grow love in us. He will also continue to purify us. As we grow in our relationship with Christ, as we grow closer to God, we will be purified. The church will be purified. Individually, we will be purified. Folks are lamenting nowadays, uh, and if you do any sort of research, look up Ed Stetzer. Uh, he's the king of all Southern Baptist research. Um, we're lamenting the fact that people are leaving the church, but what we're finding with people leaving the church nowadays is the people primarily who are leaving the church, and I'm not talking about going to another church, I'm talking about leaving the church. People who are leaving the church were not really a part of the church to begin with. They were there because they thought they had to be. They were there because their grandma always said you had to go to church. And in the South, we did what grandma said. So we went to church. Never got anything out of it. What he calls it is that squishy middle. Used to... 25% of the population never went to church, didn't have any relationship with God, didn't care a thing about it. 25% of the population had a relationship with God, a, a, a born-again or some sort of deep relationship, as they described it, with God through Jesus. Mostly, or, or, or to a great extent, what we would call true believers. That 50% in the middle is what Ed Stetzer calls the squishy middle. It's those people who attended church, but if you ask them about a relationship, no, they just went to church. It's those people that are leaving. The reality is the 25%, the, the sold out, the, the believers, that number is not getting smaller in our country today. As a matter of fact, that number is slightly increasing. It's those who just came because they were supposed to. Nobody cares anymore. We don't care, really, that our politicians go to church. Used to, you didn't get elected if you don't, didn't go to church. And there's, there's, I could spend a lot of time on that. 
in the, given the last nine months, but you know, not. But for the most part, it doesn't matter. We can have folks who are avowed atheists be elected, and nobody really cares. That squishy middle's leaving church. That's purification, y'all. The, 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 the term we use is that too, for too long in the South, we have been, South particular, I'm just picking on the South because, well, that's where I grew up, number one, and we have a lot of people, cultural Christianity is a big deal in the South. We are cultural Christians. We go to church because Grandma told us to. That sort of relationship with the church is not one that leads to salvation, but it actually inoculates you from salvation. Oh, I got enough, I got enough religion, I don't need Jesus. You know, I, I never, smallpox, you know how they treated smallpox, right? They realized if you got a different sort, like a chicken pox or something, if you got that, you didn't catch smallpox. You were inoculated. You didn't get the full-blown thing. You had just enough to keep you from getting the full-blown thing. A lot of people had just enough church to keep them from getting a relationship with Jesus. And those are the people that are being purified. Hopefully, they're coming to Christ. But for the most part, it is God, what did we talk about a couple of months ago? Trimming. Cutting off the dead branches. Cutting off the leaves. Cutting off even sometimes what looks like good fruit. You know, they, they don't live a life that says anything about Jesus, but they sure do give a lot. Snip, snip, snip. Oh, they're hard workers. I mean, they cuss like a sailor drink, beat up their wife, but, you know, I can get them here in the morning to, to be on the greeter ministry. Snip, snip, snip. That's what God is doing. He is purifying us. And then he will continue to unify us. That will be Jesus' work in our lives to bring us together because the remnant must be unified because if we are divided we have no strength we have no purpose so he is going to continue to unify us he is going to continue to bring us together behind one mission vision behind one mission and he's doing that right now right here among us today in churches across the country we see it it hurts remember we talked about how painful the pruning process is it's always painful and yet he is doing that and 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 we we we, we kind of flinch and we we but no no I, I, our toddlers uh well they're not really toddlers anymore but that's still how we refer to them our, our preschoolers if jace or janie marie get a splinter gets a splinter or oh what was it the other day i, I can't remember now there was something particular she had that all I needed to do was just pull it off. Was it a sticker? But she thought the sticker was going to hurt if I pulled it off of her. And she, oh, no, no, no. And I finally just had to grab her and just rip it off. And she was done and went on. Well, no, it's Janie Marie. She cried longer than that. But anyway, um, the point is it was painful for a moment. And it looked worse than it was going to actually be, but when the time came, it had to be done. And that's what we see in the church today. As Jesus prays this prayer, 
as his intensity rises, as his emotions swell, as he gets more and more passionate, as he comes to the end of this prayer, and he says, not just for the disciples, but God, unify my church. He is praying that you and I will set aside our differences, celebrate our diversity, and come together for the one mission, one vision, one purpose of the church, to see the lost come to know him. If we are doing anything else, we are failing. Period. He has an earthly prayer for you today as well, though. I mean, see, again, go back to the purpose May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The world may know you have sent me and have loved them. This morning, there's an earthly prayer for you that you will know that Jesus was sent for you. That you will know that Jesus loves you. How do you know Jesus loves you? Well, we can start by Admitting the fact that, that we're sinners. You are a sinner. I am a sinner. And there's a penalty for that sin. That penalty was death. It is death. Separation from God eternally. That's death. We're going to die physically? Sure, we all get that. Unless you're a believer and Jesus comes back before we die. Other than that, you're going to die. That physical death is part of the punishment. But the ultimate punishment is a spiritual death. An eternity bound to a Christless hell. That's the promise. That's the wage of our sinfulness. And all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You, me, and everybody else. But those wages, that penalty, that spiritual, eternal death, that is not guaranteed. See, there, there's an option. There's a gift. And that gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. That they may know me, he prayed at the end of that prayer. That they may know that I loved them, he prayed at the end of that prayer. The wages of sin certainly is death. But we can have eternal life. We can experience that love. We can know him because of the gift of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And if we question, does he really love me? He proved that to you long before you were born. Long before you'd ever sinned the first time, Christ died for you. Every one of you. So if you're wondering, well, maybe he doesn't know me. Oh, yeah, he does. And he died for you anyway. Well, maybe he's not aware of everything. Oh, yes, he is. And he died for you anyway. Well, Michael, it's just, it's too hard. I've got I've to give, right? I've got to give money. I've got to do certain things. I've got I to come forward and bow just right and some hand motions. And I've got to do, I've got to put my name on this role. And I've got to sign up for these committees. I've got to do, right? I mean, I've got to do, I've got I to quit this and quit that. And I've got a long list of dues. I've, you're going to, you've got a list for me. And then if I do all that, I get to be saved, right? That's it. I mean, then I can, no, no. Um, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and tithes will be saved? No, no, because I'm looking, it doesn't say that. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and, and joins a committee will be saved? No, mm -mm. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and never cusses again will be saved? No, it doesn't, doesn't say that either. 
Uh, for, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord and stops sinning completely will be... No, no. I just see here, it, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's confusing, Michael. Well, here, let me help you out. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do I have to do anything else? Well, yeah, I mean, you leave your old life behind. You, you repent. You come to Jesus and say, I don't want to be who I was. Now, that doesn't mean that the rest of your life you're never going to sin again. That means that the rest of your life is, is forgiven, though. That means that if you have a relationship with him that begins today, then tomorrow, as you draw closer to him, you draw closer to each other, and you begin to lay aside those things that encumber us, Hebrews says. We begin to be sanctified, made holy. Jesus is going to work on you for a long time. But it takes that moment, that point, that time where you say, I believe, I confess with my mouth Jesus is Lord, and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Let's, let's get that part right. We'll work on tomorrow when tomorrow gets here. This morning, if you've never trusted Christ, if you've never experienced salvation, Jesus' earthly prayer is that you will be one with him. So in spite of what you know of me, come to Jesus anyway. In spite of what you know about the person sitting next to you, come to Jesus anyway. He's working on me. He's working on that person sitting next to you. And he wants to work on you as well. Will you give him your heart this morning and trust him for salvation? Let's pray. Father, I, I thank you, God, that, that your son was so in tune with you, so captured and enraptured with making your kingdom known that, you, that, that he prayed for our unity today that he prayed for us to be one. God, I, I thank you that his purpose has not changed, that he wants to bring more into the fold. Though the gate is narrow, it is still wide open. It is still freely beckoning. God, may we as a church experience that unity and exemplify that unity to a world who wants something more than the shallowness and the hopelessness of their lives. May they look at us and see that. But God, this morning, even if what someone here sees doesn't quite match up with what we're talking about in the Bible, we know that he's still working on us, that you're still working on us. Even if they're wondering, but how does that go with this? or this other thing, and how do I give up these, and how do I really know that today they will take that first step, trusting you with their hearts and their lives, and they will follow you in salvation. Lord, work on every heart here. Unify us as believers. Bring more into your fold this morning as someone follows you for salvation. And may we celebrate and worship today because of what you're doing in this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, what's your decision today? Do you need to follow Christ? Do you need to repent of your sins and, and, and give him your heart? 
give him your life, that may very, be, may very well be your decision today. I would love to pray with you about that decision, talk to you about that decision. Grab me afterwards if right now it's still confusing. But maybe church member, believer, you have other decisions to make. Maybe you're a believer and you've never been baptized and you want to come forward and say, I want to make that public stand. Maybe you want to join our church this morning, be a part of the mission to reach our community here. Maybe you are being called to teach Sunday school. Oh, heavens, no, Michael. Maybe you're being called into the ministry. Oh, certainly not, Michael. Maybe you're being called to the mission field. Oh, I know God ain't doing that, Michael. But I, I bet you he is. I bet you there's somebody here this morning that has been telling God no for quite some time. And today, you need to say, you know what? I'm surrendering. Whatever your decision is, maybe you just got issues you need to pray about. You can come and do that. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's do business with God this morning. He, he does business with our hearts.